Section 5 The One Thousand Dozen of the Faith of Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Anderson. The One Thousand Dozen by Jack London. David Rasmussen was a hustler, and like many a greater man, a man of the one idea. Wherefore, when the clarion call of the north rang on his ear, he conceived an adventure in eggs, and bent all his energy to its achievement. He figured briefly and to the point, and the adventure became iridescent-hued, splendid, that eggs would sell at Dawson for five dollars a dozen was a safe working premise. Whence it was incontrovertible that one thousand dozen would bring in, in the golden metropolis, five thousand dollars. On the other hand, expense was to be considered, and he considered it well, for he was a careful man, keenly practical, with a hard head, and a heart that imagination never warmed. At fifteen cents a dozen, the initial cost of his thousand dozen would be one hundred and fifty dollars, a mere bagatelle in face of the enormous profit. And suppose, just suppose, to be wildly extravagant for once, that transportation for himself and eggs should run up eight hundred and fifty more. He would still have four thousand clear cash and clean when the last egg was disposed of, and the last dust had rippled into his sack. You see, Alma, he figured it over with his wife, the cozy dining-room submerged in a sea of maps, government surveys, guidebooks, and Alaskan itineraries. You see, expenses don't really begin till you make Daia. Fifty dollars will cover it with a first-class passage thrown in. Now from Daia to Lake Linderman, Indian packers take your goods over for twelve cents a pound, twelve dollars a hundred, or one hundred and twenty dollars a thousand. Say I have fifteen hundred pounds, it'll cost one hundred and eighty dollars. Call it two hundred and be safe. I am credibly informed by a Klondiker, just come out, that I can buy a boat for three hundred but the same man says I'm sure to get a couple of passengers for one hundred and fifty each, which will give me the boat for nothing. And further, they can help me manage it. And that's all. I put my eggs ashore from the boat at Dawson. Now let me see, how much is that? Fifty dollars from San Francisco to Daia, two hundred from Daia to Linderman. Passengers pay for the boat, Two hundred and fifty, all told, she summed up swiftly. And a hundred for my clothes and personal outfit, he went on happily. That leaves a margin of five hundred for emergencies. And what possible emergencies can arise? Alma shrugged her shoulders and elevated her brows. If that vast Northland was capable of swallowing up a man and a thousand dozen eggs, Surely there was room and to spare for whatever else he might happen to possess. So she thought, but she said nothing. She knew David Rasmussen too well to say anything. 
doubling the time because of chance delays, I should make the trip in two months. Think of it, Alma, four thousand in two months. Beats the paltry hundred a month I'm getting now. Why, we'll build further out, where we'll have more space, gas in every room, and a view. And the rent of the cottage will pay taxes, insurance, and water, and leave something over. And then there's always the chance of my striking it and coming out a millionaire. Now tell me, Alma, don't you think I'm very moderate? And Alma could hardly think otherwise. Besides, had not her own cousin, though a remote and distant one to be sure, the black sheep, the harem scarum, the ne'er-do-well, had not he come down out of that weird north country with a hundred thousand in yellow dust to say nothing of a half-ownership in the hole from which it came? David Rasmussen's grocer was surprised when he found him weighing eggs in the scales at the end of the counter. And Rasmussen himself was more surprised when he found that a dozen eggs weighed a pound and a half, fifteen hundred pounds for his thousand dozen. There would be no weight left for his clothes, blankets, and cooking utensils, to say nothing of the grub he must necessarily consume, by the way. His calculations were all thrown out, and he was just proceeding to recast them, when he hit upon the idea of weighing small eggs. For whether they be large or small, a dozen eggs is a dozen eggs, he observed sagely to himself, and a dozen small ones he found to weigh but a pound and a quarter. Thereat the city of San Francisco was overrun by anxious-eyed emissaries and commission houses and dairy associations were startled by a sudden demand for eggs running not more than twenty ounces to the dozen. Rasmussen mortgaged the little cottage for a thousand dollars, arranged for his wife to make a prolonged stay among her own people, threw up his job, and started north. To keep within his schedule, he compromised on a second-class passage, which, because of the rush, was worse than steerage. And in the late summer, a pale and wobbly man, he disembarked with his eggs on the Daia beach. But it did not take him long to recover his land legs and appetite. His first interview with the Chillicoot packers straightened him up and stiffened his backbone. Forty cents a pound, they demanded for the twenty-eight-mile portage. And while he caught his breath and swallowed, the price went up to forty-three. Fifteen husky Indians put the straps on his packs at forty-five, but took them off at an offer of forty-seven from a Skagway Croesus, in dirty shirt and ragged overalls, who had lost his horses on the White Pass Trail, and was now making a last desperate drive at the country by way of Chilkoot. But Rasmussen was clean grit, and at fifty cents found takers, who two days later set his eggs down intact at Linderman. But fifty cents a pound is a thousand dollars a ton, and his fifteen hundred pounds had exhausted his emergency fund and left him stranded at the Tantalus Point, where each day he saw the fresh whipsawed boats departing for Dawson. Further, a great anxiety brooded over the camp where the boats were built. Men worked frantically early and late, at the height of their endurance, caulking, nailing, and pitching, in a frenzy of haste, 
for which adequate explanation was not far to seek. Each day the snow line crept farther down the bleak, rock-shouldered peaks, and gale followed gale with sleet and slush and snow. And in the eddies and quiet places young ice formed and thickened through the fleeting hours. And each morn toil-stiffened men turned wan faces across the lake to see if the freeze-up had come. For the freeze-up heralded the death of their hope, the hope that they would be floating down the swift river ere navigation closed on the chain of lakes. To harrow Rasmussen's soul further, he discovered three competitors in the egg business. It was true that one, a little German, had gone broke, and was himself forlornly back-tripping the last pack of the portage. But the other two had boats nearly completed, and were daily supplicating the god of merchants and traders to stay the iron hand of winter for just another day. But the iron hand closed down over the land, Men were being frozen in the blizzard, which swept Chilkoot, and Rasmussen frosted his toes ere he was aware. He found a chance to go passenger with his freight in a boat just shoving off through the rubble, but two hundred hard cash was required, and he had no money. "'I tank you used wait eed little while,' said the Swedish boat-builder, who had struck his Klondike right there and was wise enough to know it. One little while, and I make you a Tom Fine skiff boat, sure, Pete. With this unpledged word to go on, Rasmussen hit the back trail to Crater Lake, where he fell in with two press correspondents, whose tangled baggage was strewn from Stonehouse over across the pass and as far as Happy Camp. Yes, he said with consequence, I've a thousand dozen eggs at Linderman, and my boat's just about got the last seam called. "'Consider myself in luck to get it. "'Boats are at a premium, you know, and none to be had.' "'Whereupon, and almost with bodily violence, "'the correspondents clamored to go with him, "'fluttered greenbacks before his eyes, "'and spilled yellow twenties from hand to hand. "'He could not hear of it, but they over-persuaded him, "'and he reluctantly consented to take them at three hundred apiece.' Also they pressed upon him the passage money in advance, and while they wrote to their respective journals concerning the Good Samaritan with the thousand dozen eggs, the Good Samaritan was hurrying back to the Swede at Linderman. "'Here, you, give me that boat,' was his salutation, his hand jingling the correspondent's gold pieces, and his eyes hungrily bent upon the finished craft. The Swede regarded him stolidly and shook his head. "'How much is the other fellow paying? Three hundred? "'Well, here's four. Take it.' "'He tried to press it upon him, but the man backed away. "'I tank not. I say him, give der skiff boat. You yest wait. "'Here's six hundred. Last call. Take it or leave it. Tell him it's a mistake.' "'The Swede wavered. "'I tank, yes,' he finally said. "'And the last Rasmussen saw of him his vocabulary was going to wreck in a vain effort to explain the mistake to the other fellows. The German slipped and broke his ankle on the steep hogback above Deep Lake, sold out his stock for a dollar a dozen, and with the proceeds hired Indian packers to carry him back to Daia. 
but on the morning Rasmunsen shoved off with his correspondence, his two rivals followed suit. "'How many you got?' one of them, a lean little New Englander, called out. "'One thousand dozen, Rasmunsen answered proudly. "'Huh! I'll go you even stakes. I beat you in with my eight hundred. The correspondents offered to lend him the money, but Rasmunsen declined, and the Yankee closed with the remaining rival, a brawny son of the sea and sailor of ships and things, who promised to show them all a wrinkle or two when it came to cracking on. And crack on he did. With a large tarpaulin, square sail, which pressed the bow half under at every jump, he was the first to run out of Linderman, but disdaining the portage, piled his loaded boat on the rocks in the boiling rapids. Rasmunsen and the Yankee, who likewise had two passengers, portage across on their backs, and then lined their empty boats down through the bad water to Bennett. Bennett was a twenty-five-mile lake, narrow and deep, a funnel between the mountains through which storms ever romped. Rasmunsen camped on the sand-pit at its head, where were many men and boats bound north in the teeth of the Arctic winter. He awoke in the morning to find a piping gale from the south, which caught the chill from the whited peaks and glacial valleys, and blew as cold as north wind ever blew. But it was fair, and he also found the Yankee staggering past the first bold headland with all sails set. Boat after boat was getting under way, and the correspondence fell too with enthusiasm. "'We'll catch him before Caribou Crossing,' they assured Rasmunsen, as they ran up to sail, and the Alma took the first icy spray over her bow. Now Rasmunsen, all his life, had been prone to cowardice on water, but he clung to the kicking steering oar with set face and determined jaw. His thousand dozen were there in the boat before his eyes, safely secured beneath the correspondent's baggage, and somehow before his eyes were the little cottage and the mortgage for a thousand dollars. It was bitter cold. Now and again he hauled in the steering sweep and put out a fresh one, while his passengers chopped the ice from the blade. Wherever the spray struck, it turned instantly to a frost, and the dipping boom of the spirit sail was quickly fringed with icicles. The Alma strained and hammered through the big seas till the seams and butts began to spread. But in lieu of bailing, the correspondents chopped ice and flung it overboard. There was no let-up. The mad race with winter was on, and the boats tore along in a desperate string. We... We, we we can't stop to save our souls, one of the correspondents chattered from cold, not fright. That's right, keep her down the middle, old man, the other encouraged. Rasmunsen replied with an idiotic grin. The iron-bound shores were in a lather of foam, and even down the middle the only hope was to keep running away from the big seas. To lower sail was to be overtaken and swamped. Time and again they passed boats, pounding among the rocks, and once they saw one on the edge of the breakers about to strike. A little craft behind them, with two men, jibbed over and turned bottom up. 
"'Watch out, old man!' cried he of the chattering teeth. Rasmussen grinned and tightened his aching grip on the sweep. Scores of times had the send of the sea caught the big square stern of the Alma and thrown her off from dead before it till the afterleach of the spirit sail fluttered hollowly. And each time, and only with all his strength, had he forced her back. His grin by then had become fixed, and it disturbed the correspondents to look at him. They roared down past an isolated rock a hundred yards from shore. From its wave-drenched top a man shrieked wildly, for the instant cutting the storm with his voice. But the next instant the Alma was by, and the rock growing a black speck in the troubled froth. "'That settles the Yankee! Where's the sailor?' shouted one of his passengers. Rasmussen shot a glance over his shoulder at a black square sail. He had seen it leap up out of the gray to windward, and for an hour off and on had been watching it grow. The sailor had evidently repaired damages and was making up for lost time. Look at him come! Both passengers stopped chopping ice to watch. Twenty miles of Bennett were behind them, room and despair for the sea to toss up its mountains toward the sky. Sinking and soaring like a storm-god, the sailor drove by them. The huge sail seemed to grip the boat from the crest of the waves, to tear it bodily out of the water, and fling it crashing and smothering down into the yawning troughs. The sea'll never catch him, but he'll r r run her nose under. Even as they spoke, the black tarpaulin swooped from sight behind a big comber. The next wave rolled over the spot, and the next, but the boat did not reappear. The Alma rushed by the place. A little riffraff of oats and boxes was seen. An arm thrust up and a shaggy head broke surface a score of yards away. For a time there was silence. As the end of the lake came in sight, the waves began to leap aboard with such steady recurrence that the correspondents no longer chopped ice but flung the water out with buckets. Even this would not do, and after a shouted conference with Rasmussen, they attacked the baggage. Flour, bacon, beans, blankets, cooking stove, ropes, odds and ends, everything they could get hands on flew overboard. The boat acknowledged it at once, taking less water and rising more buoyantly. "'That'll do,' Rasmussen called sternly, as they applied themselves to the top layer of eggs." The hell it will, answered the shivering one savagely. With the exception of their notes, films, and cameras, they had sacrificed their outfit. He bent over, laid hold of an egg box, and began to worry it out from under the lashing. Drop it! Drop it, I say! Rasmussen had managed to draw his revolver, and with the crook of his arm over the sweep head, was taking aim. The correspondent stood up on the thwart, balancing back and forth, his face twisted with menace and speechless anger. "'My God!' so cried his brother correspondent, hurling himself face downward into the bottom of the boat. The Alma, under the divided attention of Rasmussen, had been caught by a great mass of water and whirled around. The afterleach hollowed, the sail emptied and jibbed and the boom, sweeping with terrific force across the boat, 
carried the angry correspondent overboard with a broken back. Mast and sail had gone over the side as well. A drenching sea followed as the boat lost headway, and Rasmussen sprang to the bailing bucket. Several boats hurtled past them in the next half hour, small boats, boats of their own size, boats afraid, unable to do out, but run madly on. Then a ten-ton barge, at imminent risk of destruction, lowered sail to windward and lumbered down upon them. "'Keep off! Keep off!' Rasmussen screamed. But his low gunwale ground against the heavy craft, and the remaining correspondent clambered aboard. Rasmussen was over the eggs like a cat, and in the bow of the Alma, striving with numb fingers to bend the hauling lines together. "'Come on!' a red-whiskered man yelled at him. "'Of a thousand dozen eggs here,' he shouted back. "'Give me a tow. I'll pay you.' "'Come on!' they howled in chorus. A big white cat broke just beyond, washing over the barge and leaving the Alma half-swamped. The men cast off, cursing him as they ran up their sail. Rasmussen cursed back and fell to bailing, the mast and sail like a sea anchor still fast by the halyards, held the boat head on to wind and sea, and gave him a chance to fight the water out. Three hours later, numbed, exhausted, blathering like a lunatic, but still bailing, he went ashore on an ice-strewn beach near Caribou Crossing. Two men, a government courier and a half-breed voyager, dragged him out of the surf, saved his cargo, and beached the Alma. They were paddling out of the country in a Peterborough, and gave him shelter for the night in their storm-bound camp. Next morning they departed, but he elected to stay by his eggs, and thereafter the name and fame of the man with a thousand dozen eggs began to spread through the land. Gold-seekers who made in before the freeze-up carried the news of his coming. Grizzled old-timers of Forty Mile and Circle City Sourdoughs with leather jaws and bean-calloused stomachs called up dream memories of chickens and green things at the mention of his name. Daia and Skagway took an interest in his being and questioned his progress from every man who came over the passes, while Dawson, golden, omeletless Dawson, fretted and worried and waylaid every chance arrival for word of him. But of this Rasmussen knew nothing. The day after the wreck he patched up the Alma and pulled out. A cruel east wind blew in his teeth from Tagish, but he got the oars over the side and bucked manfully into it, though half the time he was drifting backward and chopping ice from the blades. According to the custom of the country he was driven ashore at Windy Arm. Three times on Tagish saw him swamped and beached, and Lake Marsh held him at the freeze-up. The Alma was crushed in the jamming of the floes, but the eggs were intact. These he back-tripped two miles across the ice to the shore, where he built a cache which stood for years after and was pointed out by men who knew. Half a thousand frozen miles stretched between him and Dawson, and the waterway was closed. But Rasmussen, with a peculiar tense look in his face, struck back up the lakes on foot. What he suffered on that lone trip 
with naught but a single blanket, an axe, and a handful of beans, is not given to ordinary mortals to know. Only the Arctic adventurer may understand. Suffice that he was caught in a blizzard on Chilkoot, and left two of his toes with the surgeon at sheep camp. Yet he stood on his feet and washed dishes in the scullery of the Pawona to the Puget Sound, and from there passed coal on a P.S. boat to San Francisco. It was a haggard, unkempt man who limped across the shining office floor to raise a second mortgage from the bank people. His hollow cheeks betrayed themselves through the scraggy beard, and his eyes seemed to have retired into deep caverns where they burned with cold fires. His hands were grained from exposure and hard work, and the nails were rimmed with tight-packed dirt and coal dust. He spoke vaguely of eggs and ice-packs, winds and tides, but when they declined to let him have more than a second thousand, his talk became incoherent, concerning itself chiefly with the price of dogs and dog-food, and such things as snowshoes and moccasins and winter trails. They let him have fifteen hundred, which was more than the cottage warranted, and breathed easier when he scrawled his signature and passed out the door. Two weeks later he went over Chilkoot with three dog-sleds of five dogs each. One team he drove, the two Indians with him driving the others. At Lake Marsh they broke out the cache and loaded up, but there was no trail. He was the first in over the ice, and to him fell the task of packing the snow and hammering away through the rough river jams. Behind him he often observed a campfire smoke trickling thinly up through the quiet air, and he wondered why the people did not overtake him, for he was a stranger to the land and did not understand. Nor could he understand his Indians when they tried to explain. This they conceived to be a hardship, but when they balked and refused to break camp of mornings, he drove them to their work at pistol point. When he slipped through an ice bridge near the white horse and froze his foot, tender yet and oversensitive from the previous freezing, the Indians looked for him to lie up. But he sacrificed a blanket, and with his foot encased in an enormous moccasin, big as a water bucket, continued to take his regular turn with the front sled. Here was the cruelest work, and they respected him. Though on the side they wrapped their foreheads with their knuckles, and significantly shook their heads. One night they tried to run away, but the zip-zip of his bullets in the snow brought them back, snarling but convinced. Whereupon, being only savage Chilkut men, they put their heads together to kill him, but he slept like a cat, and waking or sleeping the chance never came. Often they tried to tell him the import of the smoke wreath in the rear, but he could not comprehend and grew suspicious of them, and when they sulked or shirked, he was quick to let drive at them between the eyes, and quick to cool their heated souls with the sight of his ready revolver. And so it went, with mutinous men, wild dogs, and a trail that broke the heart. He fought the men to stay with him, fought the dogs to keep them away from the eggs, fought the ice, the cold, and the pain of his foot which would not heal. 
As fast as the young tissue renewed, it was bitten and scarred by the frost, so that a running sore developed into which he could almost shove his fist. In the mornings, when he first put his weight upon it, his head went dizzy, and he was near to fainting from the pain. But later on in the day it usually grew numb, to recommence when he crawled into his blankets and tried to sleep. Yet he, who had been a clerk and sat at a desk all his days, toiled till the Indians were exhausted, and even outworked the dogs. How hard he worked, how much he suffered, he did not know. Being a man of the one idea, now that the idea had come, it mastered him. In the foreground of his consciousness was Dawson, in the background his thousand dozen eggs, and midway between the two his ego fluttered, striving always to draw them together to a glittering golden point. This golden point was the five thousand dollars, the consummation of the idea, and the point of departure for whatever new idea might present itself. For the rest he was a mere automaton. He was unaware of other things, seeing them as through a glass darkly, and giving them no thought. The work of his hands he did with machine-like wisdom, likewise the work of his head. So the look on his face grew very tense, till even the Indians were afraid of it, and marveled at the strange white man who had made them slaves and forced them to toil with such foolishness. Then came a snap on Lake Labarge, when the cold of the outer space smote the tip of the planet, and the force ranged sixty and odd degrees below zero. Here, laboring with open mouth that he might breathe more freely, he chilled his lungs, and for the rest of the trip he was troubled with a dry, hacking cough, especially irritable in smoke of camp or under stress of undue exertion. On the thirty-mile river he found much open water, spanned by precarious ice-bridges, and fringed with narrow rim ice, tricky and uncertain. The rim ice was impossible to reckon on, and he dared it without reckoning, falling back in his revolver when his drivers demurred. But on the ice-bridges, covered with snow though they were, precautions could be taken. These they crossed on their snowshoes, with long poles, held crosswise in their hands, to which to cling in case of accident. Once over the dogs were called to follow, and on such a bridge, where the absence of the center ice was masked by the snow, one of the Indians met his end. He went through as quickly and neatly as a knife through thin cream, and the current swept him from view down into the stream ice. That night his mate fled away through the pale moonlight. Rasmunsen futilely punctuated the silence with his revolver, a thing that he handled with more celerity than cleverness. Thirty-six hours later the Indian made a police camp on the big salmon. Um, 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 funny mans, what you call? Top em head all loose, the interpreter explained to the puzzled captain. Eh? Yep, clazy, much clazy mans. Eggs, eggs, all the time eggs, savvy? Come bimaby. It was several days before Rasmunsen arrived, 
the three sleds lashed together and all the dogs in a single team. It was awkward, and where the going was bad he was compelled to back-trip it sled by sled, though he managed most of the time, through Herculean efforts to bring all along on the one hall. He did not seem moved when the captain of the police told him his man was hitting the high places for Dawson, and was by that time probably halfway between Selkirk and Stuart. Nor did he appear interested when informed that the police had broken the trail as far as Pelly, for he had attained to a fatalistic acceptance of all natural dispensations, good or ill. But when they told him that Dawson was in the bitter clutch of famine, he smiled threw the harness on his dogs, and pulled out. But it was at his next halt that the mystery of the smoke was explained. With the word at Big Salmon that the trail was broken to Pelly, there was no longer any need for the smoke wreath to linger in his wake. And Rasmunsen, crouching over lonely fire, saw a motley string of sleds go by. First came the courier and the half-breed who had hauled him out from Bennett, then mail carriers for Circle City, two sleds of them, and a mixed following of ingoing Klondikers. Dogs and men were fresh and fat, while Rasmunsen and his brutes were jaded and worn down to the skin and bone. They of the smoke wreath had traveled one day in three, resting and reserving their strength for the dash to come when broken trail was met with. While each day he had plunged and floundered forward, breaking the spirit of his dogs and robbing them of their metal. As for himself, he was unbreakable. They thanked him kindly for his efforts on their behalf, those fat, fresh men, thanked him kindly with broad grims and ribald laughter. And now, when he understood, he made no answer. Nor did he cherish silent bitterness. It was immaterial. The idea... The fact behind the idea was not changed. Here he was, and his thousand dozen. There was Dawson. The problem was unaltered. At the little salmon, being short of dog food, the dogs got into his grub. And from there to Selkirk he lived on beans, coarse brown beans, big beans, grossly nutritive, which gripped his stomach and doubled him up at two-hour intervals. But the factor at Selkirk had a notice on the door of the post to the effect that no steamer had been up the Yukon for two years, and in consequence grub was beyond price. He offered to swap flour, however, at the rate of a cupful of each egg. But Rasmunsen shook his head and hit the trail. Below the post he managed to buy frozen horsehide for the dogs, the horses having been slain by the Chilkat cattlemen and the scraps and offal preserved by the Indians. He tackled the hide himself, but the hair worked into the bean sores of his mouth and was beyond endurance. Here at Selkirk he met the forerunners of the hungry exodus of Dawson, and from there on they crept over the trail, a dismal throng. No grub was the song they sang, no grub and had to go, everybody holding candles for a rise in the spring. "'Flour, dollar and a half a pound, and no cellars.' "'Eggs?' one of them answered. "'Dollar apiece, but there ain't none.' Rasmunsen made a rapid calculation. Twelve thousand dollars,' he said aloud. 
Hey? the man asked. Nothing, he answered, and mushed the dogs along. When he arrived at Stewart River, seventy from Dawson, five of his dogs were gone, and the remainder were falling in the traces. He also was in the traces, hauling with what little strength was left in him. Even then he was barely crawling along ten miles a day. His cheekbones and nose, frostbitten again and again, were turning bloody black and hideous. The thumb, which was separated from the fingers by the G-pole, had likewise been nipped and gave him great pain. The monstrous moccasin still encased his foot, and strange pains were beginning to rack the leg. At sixty mile, the last beans, which he had been rationing for some time, were finished, yet he steadfastly refused to touch the eggs. He could not reconcile his mind to the legitimacy of it, and staggered and fell along the way to Indian River. Here a fresh-killed moose and an open-handed old-timer gave him and his dogs new strength, and at Ainsley's he felt repaid for it when a stampede, ripe from Dawson in five hours, was sure he'd get a dollar and a quarter for every egg he possessed. He came up the steep bank by the Dawson barracks with fluttering heart and shaking knees. The dogs were so weak that he was forced to rest them, and waiting he leaned limply against the gee-pole. A man, an eminently decorous-looking man, came sauntering by in a great bearskin coat. He glanced at Rasmussen curiously, then stopped and ran a speculative eye over the dogs and the three lashed sleds. "'What you got?' he asked. "'Eggs,' Rasmussen answered huskily, hardly able to pitch his voice above a whisper. "'Eggs? Whoopee! Whoopee!' He sprang up into the air, gyrated madly, and finished with a half a dozen war-steps. "'You don't say all of em? "'All of em. "'So you must be the egg-man.' He walked around and viewed Rasmussen from the other side. "'Come now, ain't you the egg-man?' Rasmussen didn't know, but supposed he was, and the man sobered down a bit. "'What do you expect to get for him?' he asked cautiously. Rasmussen became audacious. "'Dollar and a half,' he said. "'Done!' the man came back promptly. "'Give me a dozen.' "'I—I I mean a dollar and a half apiece,' Rasmussen hesitatingly explained. "'Sure, I heard you. Make it two dozen. Here's the dust.' The man pulled out a healthy gold sack, the size of a small sausage, and knocked it negligently against the gee-pole. Rasmussen felt a strange trembling in the pit of his stomach, a tickling of the nostrils, and an almost overwhelming desire to sit down and cry. But a curious, wide-eyed crowd was beginning to collect, and man after man was calling out for eggs. He was without scales, but the man with the bearskin coat fetched a pair, and obligingly weighed in the dust while Rasmussen passed out the goods. Soon there was a pushing and shoving and shouldering, and a great clamor. Everybody wanted to buy and to be served first, and as the excitement grew, Rasmussen cooled down. This would never do. There must be something behind the fact of their buying so eagerly. It would be wiser if he rested first and sized up the market. Perhaps eggs were worth two dollars apiece. 
Anyway, whenever he wished to sell, he was sure of a dollar and a half. Stop, he cried, when a couple of hundred had been sold. No more now. I'm played out. I've got to get a cabin, and then you can come and see me. A groan went up at this, but the man with the bearskin coat approved. Twenty-four of the frozen eggs went rattling in his capacious pockets, and he didn't care whether the rest of the town ate or not. Besides, he could see Rasmussen was on his last legs. There's a cabin right around the second corner from the Monte Carlo, he told him. The one with the soda bottle window? It ain't mine, but I've got charge of it. Rents for ten a day and cheap for the money. You move right in and I'll see you later. Don't forget the soda bottle window. Tralaloo, he called back a moment later. I'm going up the hill to eat eggs and dream of home. On his way to the cabin, Rasmussen recollected he was hungry and bought a small supply of provisions at the N.A.T.N.T. store, also a beefsteak at the butcher shop and dried salmon for the dogs. He found the cabin without difficulty and left the dogs in the harness while he started the fire and got the coffee underway. A dollar and a half apiece, one thousand dozen, eighteen thousand dollars, he kept muttering it to himself, over and over as he went about his work. As he flopped the steak into the frying pan, the door opened. He turned. It was the man with the bearskin coat. He seemed to come in with determination, as though bound on some explicit errand. But as he looked at Rasmussen, an expression of perplexity came into his face. I say, now I say, he began, then halted. Rasmussen wondered if he wanted the rent. I say, damn it, you know them eggs is bad. Rasmussen staggered. He felt as though someone had struck him an astounding blow between the eyes. The walls of the cabin reeled and tilted up. He put his hand to steady himself and rested it on the stove. The sharp pain and the smell of the burning flesh brought him back to himself. I see, he said slowly, fumbling in his pocket for the sack. You want your money back? It ain't the money, the man said. But hain't you got any eggs good? Rasmussen shook his head. You'd better take the money. But the man refused and backed away. I'll come back, he said, when you've taken stock and get what's coming. Rasmussen rolled the chopping block into the cabin and carried in the eggs. He went about it quite calmly. He took up the hand-axe, and one by one chopped the eggs in half. These halves he examined carefully and let fall to the floor. At first he sampled from the different cases, then deliberately emptied one case at a time. The heap on the floor grew larger. The coffee boiled over, and the smoke of the burning beefsteak filled the cabin. He chopped steadfastly and monotonously till the last case was finished. Somebody knocked at the door, knocked again, and let himself in. What a mess, he remarked, as he paused and surveyed the scene. The severed eggs were beginning to thaw in the heat of the stove, and a miserable odor was growing stronger. Must have happened on the steamer, he suggested. Rasmussen looked at him long and blankly. I'm Murray, Big Jim Murray. Everybody knows me, the man volunteered. 
I'm just hearin' your eggs is rotten, and I'm offerin' you two hundred for the batch. They ain't good as salmon, but still they're fair scoffins for dogs. Rasmunson seemed turned to stone. He did not move. You go to hell, he said passionlessly. Now just consider. I pride myself it's a decent price for a mess like that, and it's better or nothin'. Two hundred, what do you say? You go to hell, Rasmunson repeated softly, and get out of here. Murray gaped with a great awe, then went out carefully backward with his eyes fixed on the other's face. Rasmunson followed him out and turned the dogs loose. He threw them all the salmon he had bought and coiled a sled lashing up in his hand. Then he re-entered the cabin and drew the latch in after him. The smoke from the cindered stake made his eyes smart. He stood on the bunk, passed the lashing over the ridge pole, and measured the swing off with his eye. It did not seem to satisfy, for he put the stool on the bunk and climbed upon the stool. He drove a noose in the end of the lashing and slipped his head through. The other end he made fast. Then he kicked the stool out from under. End of the One Thousand Dozen